0: How many times have you seen Billy? Joel? No. Billy Is that Zane. <laughs> I don't
1: know. I don't know for some reason, thought like there was going to be more to the sentence, like Billy on the street. No, I was trying
0: to be cool. Like, uh, I've how seen, many times have you seen Billy?
1: Yeah, no, that's fair. I've seen Billy. I, um, I think it's fifteen or sixteen times now.
0: Has he? Uh, what guests have you seen? Like, who, who's come up on stage?
1: Um. At. Uh, the Last Play at Shea had the most guests and that, uh, the first show of that of those two, and that had um, I, I believe uh, uh, Don Henley came up, I think John Mayer came up, and John Mellink came up, Garth Brooks came up um, I've <laughs> I've set a show where, uh, a couple of shows where Cuomo came out Bruce Springsteen <laughs> came out at one show that I went Which to Which Cuomo,
0: Mario or Andrew? Andrew.
1: Uh, he's a godfather of Billy's children and uh, oh, yeah. It's Itzhak Perlman he's like a classical musician
0: yeah i've seen a good documentary on him by the way oh yeah Mm -hmm.
1: i'll never watch it probably probably not but i should um and then most notably honest to god on three different occasions i've had kevin james come out
0: yeah i know i i figured that would be the end
1: and one of them would was with leah remedy which
0: is great i i'm I'm talking about it for two reasons i'm talking about it because of he's kind of side-eyeing me in your vinyl collection yeah i have
1: my my record collection is alphabetical but the first one in the crate standing up is Billy Joel's Greatest Hits just because uh, I thought it was funny the way that he has one eye poking out from the top of the record yeah, crate.
0: He's, he's been staring at me for 26 <laughs> episodes now or whatever. Yeah,
1: it's literally, it's there because it's the uh, it's in the background of every Zoom call that I have. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, and then the other, the other reason I brought it up is because Olivia Rodrigo joined him on stage a couple of days ago.
1: Yeah, and that... Um, Kind of put me on like um, my second kind of like kick with Olivia's new album.
0: Who would you want to see join him up there?
1: Um, so I've seen Bruce, but I'd like to see it again. An obvious one is is Paul McCartney. Paul has joined him uh, at the second Shea Stadium show. I think that's the only time he's joined Billy at a Billy show. Um, I've seen. Oh, well, I saw him with him already. So,
0: what is um. What do they do do when they're up there? Do they always perform Billy songs or other things too?
1: Usually they'll do like uh, one or two of their own, then one with Billy. Olivia did, I mean, in her case, she did Deja Vu because it talks about Billy Joel and and Uptown Girl. And then she performed Uptown Girl with Billy Joel. Um, In the case of Paul McCartney at Shea, they did a couple, I think they only did Beatles songs because, I mean, it's Paul McCartney. You 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 don't
0: preempt for (laughs) scenes of Italian restaurant, I guess.
1: Um, And because uh, that was... The reason they did that was because the Beatles kind of opened Shea f- as far as concerts go. Um, oh,
0: that's cool. So it was like the last Shea sh- show? Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, so it was the well, last concert down. at Shea Stadium. It became two shows when the first one sold out. Paul McCartney made the second. He appeared at the second show there. Um, and there, there's, I may have talked about this on the podcast, but there's a documentary called The Last Play at Shea that is about the concert. Um, it's not just the live concert. It's also a documentary about... Billy Joel, about um, Shea Stadium, kind of, and the Mets in general, and also the city of Queens, and all of those things basically have, like, parallels. They all kind of symbolize similar things within pop culture or, like, within society's projection of themselves on um, what entertains them. Uh, And I, like, it's a really great um, watch. And on that they talk about how to get Paul McCartney to come to this last show, like it, it involved um, he wasn't going to make it, and it involved um, JFK's air traffic control putting his plane ahead of others <laughs> uh, to to land earlier, and police escorts like closing down roads and escorting him from JFK to City Field, and I think they got there in like fifteen. or Maybe, State State, it, Stadium, and right, they got yeah. there in like fifteen minutes or something. That's crazy. It was it was uh, like in a post nine eleven world this was happening. It's treatment that only Paul McCartney could get. Yeah. And he like gets on stage with like, within the last 30 minutes of the concert. <laughs> um, why, was one he, other... why was
0: he running so late? Just cause?
1: Well, he had said to Billy, like, I don't think I can make it, but it's going to be a close call. Cause he was coming from like England. Um, he was like with his daughter or something that day. And there's this other like non-spoiler, but a little cool part of it is like, uh, they also interviewed the guy who uh, was a groundskeeper at Shea Stadium. He's one of, he was like the longest running worker there. Uh, he drove the Beatles out to their stage at Shea in center field where uh, I think it was in, in the infield at the time. Um, in a golf cart back in the sixties, like he's kind of like their, their security guy. And he drove Paul McCartney out to the stage on the cool. last night. And he got to be like, Paul, I, I drove you the first time you were here. Yeah.
0: How does, the, how does someone relay that message to Billy while he's out there performing?
1: Um, they cover it in the doc. So maybe you should uh, just watch maybe it.
0: Maybe you should watch it then. But mm-hmm. I think
1: they kind of, they show somebody like talking to him backstage. And, yeah. And then he kind of pops off in between the encore and goes to Paul and is like, hey, let's do one more song. Let's end with like this, whatever, let it be or whatever. They yeah. Do.
0: do you want to intro the episode this time? You want to try it? Oh, man. You I, think, you I'm, ready? I'm, you think I'm ready? You think I'm ready? You know what I'm saying that, right? Is because it's getting pitch black in here again. So I'm going to go stand up and turn on the light as you enter the episode. <laughs> go go ahead. Ahead. You have 20 seconds. And if it's not up to my liking, then I'm going to do okay, it myself. Great. I'm
1: going to see if you could figure out how to turn on the light. Uh, so this is the Cinema Chain Gang Podcast for Andrew Auger. I'm Nick Ricardo. What the hell is it <laughs> Andrew can't turn the light on. Uh, welcome to the Cinema Chain Gang Podcast for Andrew Auger. I'm Nick Ricardo. This is our 14th chain and our 28th episode. Today, we're covering the movie A Futile or Futile and Stupid Gesture, directed by David Wayne. It came out in
0: what year, Andrew? Uh, January of 2018.
1: Okay. Didn't ask for the month. And we're going to cover that episode now.
0: Uh, he forgot an important part of this, which is the chain. Um, other than oh, that, I uh, guess so. Other than that, very good. <laughs> um, we are going from Anne Haish, who, of course, we talked about last week with Opening Night, and two weeks ago with Against the Wall. Uh, and we are going from her using what's his name, Brian Husky. Brian Husky. I will forget it. You will never forget it. Anymore. I'll never forget. Uh, I will forget it. And using Brian Husky to get to Seth Green, who is a big part of this movie, um, kind of. A Futile and Stupid Gesture, which chronicles the rise of National Lampoon and an entire style of comedy in the 1970s. Um, And we'll get more into that in a little bit. But first, we have a little bit of a tradition going on this show. Nick Ricardo, what have you been watching?
1: I've been watching um, a classic television show. And before I say what it is, I'm wondering if you'll get it just from this quote. Are you familiar with what I in my mind is I thought it was like a beloved sitcom quote. Uh, for children. I dropped the screw in the tuna.
0: No. Really? I mean, that makes sense, but... Told you I'm a bad quote guy, too.
1: Okay. I dropped the screw in the tuna. You don't know what that is?
0: No, Mr. but I, are you Pizza?
1: okay? I dropped the screw in the tuna.
0: That's not SpongeBob? No. Oh, no, no. It's
1: from Keen and Cal. It's actually <laughs> okay, from okay. like the first or second episode of the show.
0: Nah, Kingdom Kel was kind of before my time, man.
1: That's fair. Because it the thing is, I've noticed this with a lot of kids' shows. They're it's very easy for a kid's show to be before your time because those shows only really lasted for a couple of years, but they felt like a decade in kid terms. Or not a couple of years, but they lasted three to four seasons.
0: Um To be fair, Good Burger is one of my biggest guilty pleasure movies. Okay. So I I do I do have a great memory of that. I do remember watching that at sleepovers and really loving it. Um, just but the show Keenan and Kel itself, I don't really. Yeah, see, I mean that head. like
1: you know, I grew up with Drake and Josh being the uh, a wannabe Keenan and Kel in my mind.
0: Drake and Josh was prime my childhood. And, um, but yeah. I will say I was really into the Amanda Show too, which kind of I feel like is the successor to Keenan and Kel.
1: Yeah, kind of. It it It's definitely straddled. The, you know, between Keenan and Kel and Drake and Josh, that was like kind of like I, I'd say the main focus of Nickelodeon. Well, they all came the from all that, that, right? They all came from. All that, yeah.
0: Which is like kid SNL for those of you who don't know.
1: I mean Drake and Josh kinda of actually kinda of came from the Amanda show, really. But
0: they were right, but all it's that. all again, it's a chain. <laughs> it all, it is it all chain. ripples. Um and then uh Drake and Josh led to iCarly. Yeah. And then iCarly led to Sam and Cat directly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we have uh, uh the first couple seasons of King and Cal and of all that. Um seasons mean weird things in kid show terms because episodes are all out of order, but they're on Netflix now. The full series are on Paramount Plus. Um, I was surprised to see any of them go to Netflix, um, with like how tight of a hold Paramount Plus usually keeps on. For, so I've been watching a lot of the old Kingdom and For a lot
0: for a long time, the Nickelodeon shows were on Amazon too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how I used to watch a lot of uh, SpongeBob reruns. I mean,
1: a lot of the older ones before that were like only on iTunes. I actually a few years ago, when I was spending a lot of time. Um, like a place my family was renting at the beach uh where like we didn't really have wi-fi um i was just i would like buy whole seasons of keenan and cal to to watch over the course of a week um so i'm very familiar with them because there's only like uh four seasons worth of episodes in the show um but i just it's it's been great background
0: what spurred this just to watch it
1: um i yeah i think like just I feel like something random spurred me turning it on like a week ago. And then I was like, I guess I'll just watch the rest of it again. And I forget what it is that spurred me uh, turning it on. It might have been me saying to myself, I dropped the screw in the tuna. It might have been that. (laughs) Okay. Or me singing the theme song to myself.
0: Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I I like, uh, I think those shows actually are sharper than a lot of us remember. You know what I mean? To have a lasting impact as a kid's programming, you have to find some kind of avenue where you know, 15 years later, an adult listens to it and is like, oh, this is sharper than I remember. SpongeBob has a lot of that, in my opinion, where yeah. it's kind of like you watch episodes of SpongeBob back and you catch new layers. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the times what happens with those kids SNL-esque programs is that they're parodying things that you didn't even realize they were parodying. Yeah. So did you find that like a lot of that was happening for you or is it just kind of enjoyable on a
1: No, I, I mean, I, th- I kind of enjoy watching it as an adult. More so than all that. But I don't know how much of that is because it's appealing to me and how much of that is just, like, pure nostalgia of how much I enjoyed Keen and Kel as a kid. Um, but something about that show in particular that I think does make it kind of interesting to watch as an adult is, like, and I was even aware of this as a kid, is the physical comedy that Kel Mitchell is able to, like, pull off is it's just insane. Even as a kid, I kind of, like, without realizing that that's what I'm noticing, I, I would kind of realize, like, oh, this... This guy's got something special about him, this actor, where like it's, there's a weird natural ability to it. And
0: obviously, Keen, obviously, on the Keenan side of things, he's catapulted that into a career that is almost exclusively sketch comedy. But yeah, when you, when you, when I think of Kel Mitchell, I think of like a, like a child stylized version of the same thing that like Michael Richards and like Martin, yeah. Martin Lawrence and the more physical sitcom actors of the 90s. You That's could fair, you can yeah. even possibly throw in David Schwimmer in there a little bit too, because I feel like he was the most physical of the mm-hmm. Friends actors.
1: That's interesting, yeah. And there, there's definitely some overtones of like nervousness in Kel's character or, or or panic in Kel's character that is also there in Schwimmer's character in the later seasons of, of Friends. They're very different characters, but they, I guess in some moments they have like similar freak out styles. Um, yeah. I just, Kel's like, I he's, he's like an effortless actor. Like, it, it seems so effortless, but he did.
0: Do you have favorite sketches of the one you've been quoting or is there?
1: Uh, well, they have full episodes, not sketches, but. Um,
0: not what I'm asking. <laughs>
1: um, I, it might be. Like all the, all, you know, it's a kid's show. All the sitcom plots are like heightened, but that one is, is great. It's like, it. Again, it's like the what episodes you ordered air is kind of like debatable or like depends on how you look at it. But it's either seen as like the the first episode of the show or kind of the pilot of the show. And it's uh, Keenan chokes on a screw that's in a can of tuna fish. And then they're suing the tuna fish company um, by themselves. They don't have a lawyer because they want to make as much money as possible. And then in the courtroom, uh, Kel like breaks down on the stand and admits to Keenan. That he dropped the screw in the tuna, and he just says it for like five minutes, (laughs) and it's and there is no effort in in a kids show like this to be um, realistic or to justify anything, and that's fun uh, to just kind of see. You don't need to for a kids show. No, Uh, it could be kind of like as absurd as possible. So it's like, why is he like doing weird movements around the courtroom while saying this? It's like, well, there doesn't need to be. Yeah, it
0: could be very silly. So yeah, it's uh, it's,
1: that's enjoyable.
0: Makes sense. Maybe I'll watch it.
1: You should. I also, um, as a brief side note, just discovered a random, I wanted to just watch an episode of a sitcom I've never seen, and I found like a completely random sitcom on YouTube called Honey, I'm Home. Uh, That is like, it was a Nick at Night 90s sitcom that also spoofs 50s sitcoms. It was kind of, in a way, a precursor to WandaVision in a way. (laughs) And it wasn't great, but it was something interesting. Honey, I'm Home? It's called "Hi Honey, I'm Home." It's about
0: I could see what it's taking influence from right there. Yeah. Well,
1: it's about a night It's a. It's about a sitcom family from the nineteen fifties, that is when they're canceled. The sitcom relocation program puts them into like a real life home in somebody's neighborhood, and so it's about a family who like this one guy loves the show "Hi Honey, I'm Home," and then he finds out his new neighbors are the family from "Hi Honey, I'm Home," and they kind of live in a black and white world, kind of a bit like pleasant. Uh, Pleasantville was at the show with uh, Toby Maguire. The movie, yeah. The movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and uh, each episode kind of has like a classic uh, sitcom guest star like Andy Davis, who was Alice from Brady Bunch or something like that.
0: Oh, fun. That yeah, is cute. That it was okay. Um, my, what I've been watching is very different. Um, it's a new movie that came out over this past weekend called 3,000 Years of Longing over this past weekend of when we're recording. Excuse me. Gonna be confusing for some people. Uh, 3,000 Years of Have you ever heard of this movie? Um...
1: I thought I had, but I can't picture it, so I'm going to Google it.
0: Uh, it stars Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba. Um, it is like an adult version of Aladdin, basically. It's directed by George Miller, who is best known for Mad Max Fury Road, which, of course, was a massive hit. Uh, he also made Happy Feet. He made Big, Big Pig in the City. He's got a very diverse filmography, and he's back now with his first movie in eight years. Um, and Tilda Swinton plays this woman, uh, Alethea, who basically releases... Idris Elba from his genie bottle and Idris Elba tells him the history of his life and they kind of have this courtship and attraction. It's a very interesting and intriguing movie that is getting a lot of discussion right now. Uh, I just wanted to talk about it for like three or four minutes here because it's an exercise in how marketing can kind of deceive you a little bit of... Um, they, so they marketed the movie very much like as like a high octane rollicking ride. Have you ever seen Mad Max Fury Road? Um, no, I'm familiar with that, but yeah. So you're, you're familiar with the aesthetic kind of like the apocalyptic, like crazy gearhead, intense fire and fury vibe. And a lot of the trailers for 3000 years of longing tried to pitch this movie as kind of like an Aladdin version of that. When in reality, it's a kind of a really reflexive anecdotal tale of like these two characters stuck in a room uh it's based off a short story so it's very confined to its space and it's Idris Elba telling Tilda Swinton's character about the other people that have opened the bottle throughout history Mm -hmm. and how they've either abused his power or used their power for corruption or negatively used it or how his his abilities kind of corrupted somebody who was good and it's it's a cautionary tale and it kind of develops into the third act of the the two of them and what are they going to do about this kind of conundrum that they have Um, it's a fascinating piece because it's very much like passion project-esque like he would not have gotten this movie if he didn't make Mad Max to be the big success that it was Uh I think he's definitely wanted to make it for a long time and it's in a way it's very uncinematic which kind of was a problem for me like the structure of it going back and forth between you know the present day and the past and such right um but I think it, it, it's it's worth a watch for anybody that's even vaguely interested in it because it's such a unique piece that I think really stands out, especially among like a summer where you've had a lot of samey feeling things. Um, yeah. Very familiar. The, the two Marvel movies that have come out have or very familiar pieces. You've got Jurassic World, which kind of drowned everybody's senses with the same shit that they've been doing for the last 20 years in that franchise. You've got Lightyear, which is literally like a sweeted version you got the minions with baba and whatever um the only really unique things we've had are like nope uh bullet train to an extent even though that's derivative of other things mm-hmm. uh top gun you can't even say was unique you know it, it ended up working oh, cool. out uh but this is this stands out among everything else this this feels like a fall movie that came out now so it bombed at the box office by the time you're hearing this it's probably out of theaters but uh Maybe rent it when you get a chance.
1: Uh, Now, I have a question about it. Sure. Are you, or kind of about the director, are you aware that he had a movie in 97, it was a documentary called 40,000 Years of Dreaming,
0: you know, I saw that when I was doing like that ancillary, just like Wikipedia searching. Uh, I did not know that before this, which I think is uh, just a coincidence. I don't think they have anything to do with each other, but
1: might just be a, a format of phrasing that he likes. Um, yeah, no, you the, know, I, the, I,
0: the short story wasn't called that. The short story is called "The Gin and the Nightingale's Eye." So he might, he might just like that framing. You're right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, I um yeah, I didn't know almost anything about the movie other than like I've seen the poster around. So maybe I'll watch it. I'm intrigued by the title. He has a lot of um, films with emotions in the title. Happy Feet. He has Happy Feet. He has all of the Mad Maxes, including a Mad Max that's called Fury Road. Um, 3,000 years of longing, 40,000 years of dreaming is kind of an emotion. And he's working on something called Furiosa, which I want to say that's a... Which is a
0: prequel to Mad Max Fury Road. We'll
1: look at that then. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um... Yeah, and then uh, you call people Babe. Babe, picking the babe city. Babe, in the city. Um. <laughs> this was a good contribution to this. I appreciate I, pre- I appreciate you bringing that to the conversation, having, knowing nothing I think about it's, the
1: movie. Uh, yeah, I think that's important.
0: Should we get on with our main review here? I think we should. Only 20 minutes in, roughly, <laughs> as oh. opposed to the, our usual 30 minutes, which we set with opening night last week. But I think this this is good. We're getting to this quicker because there's... I, I, I just have a vibe that you're gonna have a lot more to say about a futile and stupid gesture. Can, I'm gonna go with futile, by the way. Um you can go with futile. Um You're gonna say futile the whole movie the whole review.
1: I can't remember how they say it in this movie, but my guess is gonna is gonna be that they say it futile because it is a reference, and we'll get into this in a bit, but it is a reference to a line from Animal House, and in Animal House they say futile.
0: Really? Yep.
1: But the correct way is both, Andrew.
0: I'm gonna say futile because I'm stubborn. How about that? Like you said, not wrong.
1: Okay, sure.
0: Yeah. Anyway, uh, directed by David Wayne, uh, who is kind of a I don't want to call him a cult comedy director. Like it, that doesn't feel, that feels a little restrictive because he's made role models, which is one of the more popular comedies of the late 2000s. But then his biggest movie is Wet Hot American Summer, which is a notoriously poorly performing movie at the box office. That is that gained such a cult following later that it led to two spin-off series on Netflix. Yeah. With, all, the, with this uh, the giant, massive ensemble cast.
1: The work he is most known for is stuff that um has kind of really developed a cult following. He was in the state, the comedy troupe that later had a lot of uh a lot of which became Reno 911 people. Um, and then he was in Stella, which was like a comedy trio on MTV with a few people from the state. Other the the two maybe like biggest people. From the state, um, just as far as like you know uh, the Hollywood star meter goes or whatever, would be Thomas Lennon and um, Robert Ben Garant. Who Tom, uh, particularly Thomas Lennon as an actor, they both wrote movies like Night at the Museum and have done like a lot of blockbusters.
0: Thomas so, Lennon, yeah. who is in this movie by the way, a few times. And yeah, so Thomas
1: Lennon is in this movie in a, pro- um, a
0: prominent role. Um,
1: and right. yeah, David Wayne is um, also the director you hear at the beginning of the movie.
0: Yeah, and Wet Hot American Summer. For those of you who are not aware of its reputation, it is kind of this absurd. It's it's a it's a summer beach comedy movie that kind of satirizes those movies and, and kind of devolves into the absurd kind of humor, um, which fits really well. It's clear that he has a reverence for what National Lampoon did in the seventies and the eighties because it's that same kind of style yeah. of like where the structure of the story is not that important. It's just like how many gags can we fit in this thing, uh, and how far can we take things? I mean, what Hot American Summer. In 2001, pre any of these people being huge, I think the cast, like Molly Shannon, David Hyde Pierce, Janine Garofalo, Paul Rudd, uh, Amy Poehler, Bradley Cooper, Elizabeth Banks, Ace John Benjamin. These are all big names now that all came back eventually to do two spin off series of that show, of mm-hmm. that movie. Um, but yeah, he did Role Models. Uh, he did Wanderlust, which is a movie that I don't really care for that much. I don't know if you've seen it.
1: I uh, I actually kind of liked it quite a
0: bit. It's been a while since I've seen it, so maybe I'll, I'll be nice and just give it a rewatch at some point. Sure. You did
1: uh, the How They Came Together Which as well. I do
0: really like a lot. That is a that is a great satire of romantic comedies. See,
1: that's one I have to give another chance.
0: See, I like that one a lot. Because it
1: kind of fell flat with me
0: when I watched it. I thought that time. I thought that was clever. And Futile and Stupid Gesture in some ways plays it safe as a biopic, but in other ways is even satirical, the biopic format, in a way that like evokes his past work and also evokes... The work of National Lampoon, which if you don't know what National Lampoon is, they were a very popular magazine publication in the 70s. Then
1: became like a comedy brand with a radio show and then a series of movies and stuff like that.
0: And of course, the most prominent of which being Animal House and Caddyshack.
1: And then all the vacation movies. And then all the
0: vacation movies, which obviously follows the events of this movie. Um, This movie specifically is about the development of that brand, specifically how Doug Kenny, played by Will Forte... Uh, and an older version played by Martin Mull as the narrator, who kind of comes in and breaks the fourth wall, and right. again kind of satirizes the biopic format. Because you would think he, he's an older actor playing a guy who you know isn't a big part of the world right now for uh, for reasons we'll get into. Well, like should we say should we say that uh, D- Kenny's no longer with us? I mean, I, I think yeah, I, I, was Wikipedia enough. I mean, we won't yeah. say how until later in the review, but like yeah, so
1: he is dead now. And that, um, the first, I saw this movie already and then I rewatched it for this.
0: I have also seen it.
1: The when first, it first came
0: out on Netflix, I saw it a long time know, ago. I don't
1: know, it really speaks to just watching a movie at the right time, because first time I saw it, I was like, I absolutely hate that, you know, I think I knew that Doug Kenny had died and I was like, I absolutely hate that this movie's being kind of narrated or led through by a version of the character that doesn't like exist, like the character's dead, why is he doing this? Um, and as I'll probably come back to a bunch in this episode, uh, this time when I watched it, I was like, what was I thinking? This is like the perfect way to do a biopic for a National Lampoon. It's so true to it itself. Now, what when you're saying it this time, you're talking about Martin Mull, what is most interesting to me is that this is the same format, that same technique, that Gotti uses with John Travolta. Well, let's not go there. <laughs> but yeah. it really, and maybe that's why I like this movie better because between it, I think, is when I saw Gotti and like. No, so the reason you like this movie, uh, oh, is this, you're, yeah, right it you're. Yeah, and it's like, oh, no, 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 that's what I don't like. Feudal, I, I like the way the Feudal does it.
0: Um, <laughs> I thought you were comparing directly Gotti in a futile and stupid gesture.
1: <laughs> no, it's like I saw once I saw it in Gotti, I go, oh, Feudal, so much better. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but I don't know. There it, I really uh, I I really enjoyed just this movie being a movie that doesn't take itself too seriously.
0: Yes, to 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 an extent, I think. Uh, so to just f- further f- set up the premise, Doug Kenny, he meets um, Henry Beard, played by Dom Gleason mm-hmm. in a nice role for him because he really has had a fantastic five to eight years showcasing his dramatic skill. This allows him to kind of play drama and comedy really well. Um, it's, it's a really good character they give him to play where he's kind of the straight man, but he's also got like a satirical wit to him. Um, and they develop this brand. They go to, they develop this brand through college and they're like, why don't we take this on? Cause they're all home?
1: working at the Harvard lampoon. Cause
0: they're all working at the Harvard lampoon and they're like, why don't we make this into a real life thing? obviously, they get a lot of pushback from their parents and everything like that. And then they go to Matt Walsh's character, Maddie Simmons. And they're like, we will produce this magazine for you. We know it's expensive. You need to back. Can you back us, basically? And he backs them. And they start to bring in talent. A lot of a who's who of... Character actors playing that talent, Thomas Lennon, Matt Lucas, Nat- Natasha Leone, and then eventually we kind of develop a lot of bigger names like Joel McHale in here playing Chevy Chase. John Daly's playing Bill Murray. The reason we're watching this movie, Seth Green, he plays Christopher Guest. Um, there's a John Belushi character. There's someone playing Lorne Michaels. There's somebody, Paul Shears is playing Paul Schaefer, of mm-hmm. course, of David Leverman fame. There's a single photo of Paul Rudd in the movie playing... Uh, uh, Larry Kroger, um, Ed Helms plays this famous like uh, broadcaster Tom Snyder. There's there's yeah. so many famous comedians in this movie, which is a big part of the. I mean, Sarah Sarah Silverman's in this, I believe, as well as like a voice recording artist. Right? Is that right? Okay. Yeah. she be like very briefly, and um, they
1: and they also believe around the time that she's in it too. They make a point to also say it's it's a gag that like Martin Mel Martin Mull has, he says, he breaks kind of the fourth wall where he's already broken it and says uh, these, uh, okay, so these actors don't look like the real actors, you know, that they're playing. The real characters that they're playing.
0: And he's like, do you think I look like Will Forte? Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: which I, one, kind of really liked that they did that, and two, uh, kind of ironically, like, I was pretty impressed (laughs) by how close a lot of them looked. Yeah. Without trying too hard.
0: Um, I think this movie is playful and fun for like 85% of the runtime. Um, I, I think it's, it's very interesting, really well structured. It's clever. Uh, the good performances. I think will I think this is probably, if you're just isolating Will Forte in terms of a performance, this is probably his second best on screen performance. If you're not talking like just straight comedy, you know what I mean? Like mixing drama and comedy Behind uh, behind Nebraska. Okay. Uh, uh, which he made with Alexander Payne and Bruce Dern in 2013, which he's great in. Um, a lot of a lot of these actors are hilarious, but also good actors at the same time, and it's and it's clear that they can pull off both. And this gives him a chance to kind of play the sad clown role a little bit. That's because I think that's kind of the characterization they're trying to give Doug, right? In this is that he yeah. is he is one of the funniest guys in the world, but he doesn't know how to share that with people properly, and he throws himself into his work to the point where he, it becomes. He he loses two romantic interests and he loses his friends and he dives yeah. deep into drugs and it, it becomes just, a you know, and that's where the final third of the movie that I didn't care for as much kind of comes into play, but it's part of the full story.
1: Mm-hmm. Why didn't you, did you not care for it enough in a similar way to last week's opening night where it kind of becomes like a more dramatic movie?
0: It becomes more standard biopic. It stops, stops with the kind of like, uh. It hits more cliches than I think the rest of the movie had been hitting. You know what yeah. I mean? And, and how it was structured and stuff like that. Like, obviously, this was the story, but I think it just kind of plays it straight more by the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it rushes its conclusion a little bit as well. Um, although I did really like the last scene, the very final scene I did enjoy. But I think the final 25, 30 minutes could have been handled better. But that, that's only my mm-hmm. my only major critique. Right. Just, it, and besides that, I thought this was... It. I felt pretty much the same way I did the f- first time, which is like I thought this was a solid biopic
1: i'm really glad i watched it again because like i said the second time i was able to more appreciate like its originality and its ability to stay true to the tone of what it seems doug kennedy's comedy was and its ability to be maybe the biopic that he would more or less most be okay with having seen made about his life
0: um if he would sanction one at all right
1: yes because like I said before, it, it, they make their remarks about the actors. It breaks the wall like that a lot where um, in the middle of the movie, they say like, you know, a bunch of this stuff is is not actually accurate. And they just like, they're like, here's a scrolling list of of things in the movie yeah, that I really like we that. actually changed. Um, and I like went back and read them and stuff. And, and they talk about like, you know, like this guy was a composite character. These guys didn't meet here. This thing happened after this, which is a pet peeve of mine in biopics when they do that too much. And so... One, I like that they were addressing it because it kind of solves that problem in a way. And two, like, if any movie is allowed to do that, it's one like this. That right. Is, that is... It's is, all about the
0: tone. It, yeah. It bothers me the most when it's trying to play itself straight as, like, a specific, like, this actually happened, this actually happened. But a lot... Like, we talked about this a couple weeks yeah. ago, and I can't remember why. But we talked about the vibe of a biopic and, like... Um, how, probably,
1: yeah, with J. Edgar.
0: Yes. Like, we're talking about the snapshot of the moment. Like, J- if J. Edgar fabricated all those facts, which it, it seems like it they probably right. probably wasn't all accurate, it would it would upset me more than this movie. Even yeah. if they didn't do that gag. Yeah. Because this is more evoking the legacy of the person as opposed to the specific this and this and this and this. Yeah. For the most part.
1: hmm Totally.
0: I was like, they satirize the idea of starting a, starting a movie with like a really tragic backstory moment from from childhood. And they're like, we're going to start this shit here? Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we'll start a more fun part here. and Then we'll come back yeah. to it later.
1: Yeah. And, um, I, and I thought it kind of, knowing a little bit about like the story of like how Doug Kenny died. Like I remember after the first time I watched it, I looked into it. I kind of like how the movie handled it. As we can talk about that now. Like in the last third of the movie, Doug Kenny, Will Forte's character is really kind of can't come out of like his kind of like depressed and like drug addicted period that he's in.
0: Right. He's and, a, he's a victim of his own success in multiple ways, which we'll all go into in a second one.
1: Yeah. And, um and in a way in itself, it almost that too, almost, you know, the movie has gone, like you said, from a comedy to something a little more dramatic and like, like formulaic, but in a way that's also, I don't know if they were trying to do this, but one could argue, maybe that's the point in the way that like Wolf of Wall Street was trying to do where it's like, Suddenly, the, the, the person who had and created nothing but fun and good times is now finding themselves in a place where, like, well, how did my life get to this like dramatic, s- sticky place that um, he is like a real world thing?
0: Right. He experiences great success with the magazine, no, still, doesn't, still isn't satisfied. He experiences great success with the movies, with Animal House specifically. He, he obviously hated how Caddyshack turned out, apparently. Even though I yeah I love Caddyshack, I think Caddyshack's even funnier than Animal House. Um, but at the time he didn't feel that way. Um, so he was obviously torn up about that. And an interesting aspect of it, how others took his style, uh, like SNL, and stole his stars from it. And he's kind of like, well, wait a minute here, like I'm I'm kind of being left in the dust here. Yeah. Um, I thought that was a very interesting thing. And they and they they built his, de- de- you know, devaluation really well. Yeah. Um, but.
1: And then that all leads to him um, going to like uh, a cliff in Hawaii and just they show him sitting on the cliff looking out, takes his shoes and his glasses off, and then it just kind of cuts to like people getting a phone call the next day. It's clear that he died and it's not clear how the characters, one character says, I think he jumped, another character says, I think he fell. Rick Glassman playing uh Harold Ramis in the movie says um he probably fell looking for a place to jump. That's all reflective of real life, where just like people don't know if he jumped or if he fell and killed himself. I think it kind of handles that pretty decently. And then like I think you were saying this what you liked about it is like it ends at his funeral, and there are some dramatic moments where, you know, a guy is like we were in a room with the funniest people in the world and nobody's laughing and like, this is really hard. And his parents are like, you know, he was so they're looking around and he always wanted his parents approval. And now his parents are looking around the room being like he was so loved and he kind of like gets that approval too late.
0: There's also something kind of ironic about the fact that he's standing with his older self that doesn't actually exist, like never there was no such thing as an older version of him because he died at the age of Will forte.
1: Yeah, and I think it's weird. I, I that's what I hated the first time I watched it. And the second time I was like, I don't know why, but I actually uh, I'm totally fine with that, or I really like it, or something.
0: Yeah, I think I think the way that that scene kind of evolves. I forget who starts the food fight. Is it Dom? Is it Donald character? I think it is.
1: He, uh, him, and then and then Belushi kind of yells out. But yeah, yeah, they they have a food fight at the which hero. obviously it. It
0: happens in early parts at Harvard, and it happens in Animal House, and it's, it's it's all supposed to be kind of self-reflective and going back to it. And I think it it's the kind of scene that could could have been really like eye-rolly. Um, I just thought Wayne's execution of it was it was solid. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it felt like a tender, touching moment and a good way to end the film. Yeah, totally. Um, I will say, I think another negative I have is I wish that the the two prominent female characters of the film got a little bit more development. I feel like they're just there to be tossed to the side which i mean i guess is kind of reflective of what happened in real life but at the same time it doesn't feel like these are fully formed characters they're just like which character nagging concerned his his two wives or his wife and, oh, his, okay. and his longtime girlfriend
1: yeah that's a, it's a hard uh thing to dissect because that's definitely true it also you could argue is indicative of his world yeah that is who they that is kind of who they were to him in a way um not even that he saw those people as that way, but any anybody anybody to him that was taking him away from just the creation of comedy and living in the world of comedy was probably seen as like a nag to him.
0: Yes, totally. Totally. I think I think their purpose in the story is justified. I just I wish, wish they were a little written better, I think. Um, mm-hmm. It didn't really bother me too much for the reasons that you're mentioning, but um, there was one specific thing that happened that reminded me a lot of you. Uh, he signs this letter like, uh, this is not a bit. I was like, oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> everything you say you have to qualify yes or no there
1: i do i did enjoy in this movie how there's multiple times they're like what what's the bit here <laughs> and then they're like no there's not one or something
0: yes um life imitating art
1: yeah and there 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 it does some creative things too other than like you know the moments where it most breaks the fourth wall where it you know it incorporates a lot of um magazine covers and articles and stuff like that they all like you know flash on screen which by the way is kind of uh a fun thing if like you're interested in comedy the first time i watched it i was not familiar with a lot of these like covers and, and articles and i was like pausing the movie like and kind of reading it I'm like oh, i should like go, re- go find that back issue of national lampoon so it has those and then it you know it shows like some of their like the comedy bits that they wrote and like the comic panels that were in the show. Yeah. And then it takes dur- during one of the most dramatic parts of the movie, besides his death, when his uh wife leaves him because he's cheating on her, that is presented almost entirely in comic In panel. a comic panel that did not actually exist or anything like that. But it is just uh one, it's fun and the the movie being loose with like the rules of the of the world it's set in. And two is also kind of um you know, obviously, like there's an irony there of like it them uh putting this uh, this dramatic stuff in like a ha ha panel kind of makes you feel pathetic in a way. Yeah, for him, pitiable.
0: Um, I think it also is a really interesting tribute to the creative process. Um, it's not the main focus of the movie, but I think in a way it finds an avenue to say a lot about like listen, like genius doesn't happen immediately. You know what I mean? The The thing that I thought was most reflective of that is there's a section of it and it comes in that second act, which is all about the development of the paper uh, or the magazine, I should say, and how demanding it is and how hard to work with he is specifically, but also how hard it is on Domhnall Gleeson's character because he leaves for nine months, Doug, Mm -hmm. um, and leaves him with these really like demand, not demanding, but like sociopathic creative types like Thomas Lennon's character and Matt Lucas's character like, yeah. all these characters that are just like they're like they're divas but they don't have the right to be divas because they're just these weird comics you know what I mean like mm-hmm. they act like they're movie stars yeah. all around the office but anyway he leaves he writes he goes to the he goes and hides out with these two friends and he writes a, an entire movie comes back brings the script to Domo Gleeson who reads the whole thing in front of him uh, and basically just tells him it's terrible <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> which is like wow like that like the create the, the creative process is so punishing sometimes and he's like we're never talking about this again forget forget about it yeah like hit comedy is so hard to achieve and the fact that they achieved it so consistently is it, it like that showing that failure actually makes it seem more remarkable in its own right how good they were at what they did
1: one other thing too the movie poster in itself is also an homage to the Probably my national favorite. lampoon magazine national lampoon had a magazine cover where they were holding like a gun up to a dog, which they show in the movie. And which is actually that, probably my
0: favorite of the ones yeah. they showed. And
1: it's so, like if you don't read this magazine, we'll kill this dog <laughs> or whatever. Um
0: and the poster says
1: the book of Feudal and Super Gesture that this was based on, which was written by Josh Carp. Uh, the cover of that was a dog holding a gun to uh uh Doug Kenny's head, a drawing of it was on the cover of oh, that. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, which is funny. And then Netflix which for like a big brand like Netflix, not completely surprising, but is is refreshing to see them do something like this. Uh, the movie poster is just uh, a hand coming in off screen, holding a gun to Will Forte's head. And Netflix's tagline for it was, if you don't watch this movie, we'll kill Will Forte. Yeah. Which, like, and you guys
0: will see this poster with the little thumbnail that we have for these episodes. So will I? the ones I make for Twitter, at least. Oh, I see. Yeah. Anything else on this movie? It, it teeters between three and three and a half stars for me on Letterboxd, I think.
1: Wow. So on my second watch, I'm going between 3.5 and 4.
0: I, I am not surprised by that. Makes sense. It,
1: yeah. It it kind of made me be like I, I had some kind of unfair expectation for this movie the first time around. I think part of the reason for that is because you are watching a comedy about some of the most renowned comedy to ever be made. And so you're you're expecting, I don't know, something. Nathan Fielder level genius, you know, and like it, not everything's going to be that. Um,
0: Brian Husky, by the way, plays John Landis Landis in the movie, who is a really well-known director the director of Animal House, basically.
1: Um, and Sarah Silverman was not in it.
0: <laughs> who am I thinking of then? Whoever was playing Gilda Radner, um, Jackie Taunt.
1: Or Michaels, played by Bo Burnham's friend in Zack Stone, is going to be famous, which is a great one season.
0: Yeah, track. I wanted to talk about that. His impression of Lauren, what did you think? Because everybody has an impression of Lauren and we hear the <laughs> SNL actors do it all the time.
1: I think I, it's kind of fine that they didn't go over. The, he didn't go over the top with it. He probably also wasn't like that back then. I think now he's...
0: He's become a parody of himself almost. Yes,
1: he's become a parody of it in, in himself now. And I think the parody... Well, I mean, I think he's like older. He's an older Canadian person now and he's like quieter and stuff like that. But also, um, I think the Lauren parody in itself, most Lauren impressions are impressions of... Like the OG Lorne impression, which Dana Carvey did, and then um, basically like Mike Myers took to be Doctor Evil is 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 Dana's Lorne Michaels.
0: Yeah, I Bill Hader does my favorite.
1: Yeah, there's since been other Lornes that I like. Anything else? No, I'm. Um... I'm a fan of like the state and a lot of David Wayne's work and stuff, and so uh, I.
0: I you you pulled something out of a bookshelf, and I thought you were pulling out something to do with that. And no, no I, I was just rearranging
1: this book. I do have the state up here, though. Oh wow! Look at um, that! Look at is that. that on purpose? Um, no, it's because it's this is my to read and watch pile. Stella was up here too, but I just watched. Oh,
0: it.
1: that's oh, nice. Actually, you that's know actually what? really good.
0: What am I saying? Look at this. I do have. That's so organized. On the top of his bookshelf, he has four or five books and movies.
1: Well, I tell myself that this is going to make me watch them or read them, but it doesn't. And the reason I want to watch a state besides the fact that I bought the DVD years ago and I haven't watched it is because I also bought a very thick oral history book about it that I probably shouldn't read until I've seen the show. Um, the state being a sketch comedy show with David Wayne and others.
0: Which you said like 20 minutes ago, but... Yeah, just bring it just back up. Just bring around. it back up. Yeah, I forgot, to be um, honest.
1: But yeah, no, no, I, I really like david wayne's work and also i don't know just kind of watching this made me really happy to like that he got to direct this that like a guy who loves comedy got to direct this movie
0: yeah definitely a recommendation from both of us i would say
1: absolutely if you don't watch this movie i will kill andrew (laughs) al
0: well before he does that let's make a new chain oh my god
1: I love that I forget we're going to make a new chain and then it becomes like... Do you
0: actually forget every time?
1: um, It's always in the back of my mind. I'm looking forward to this thing, but then I forget what it is I'm looking forward to, kind of. Yeah, cool. Um, It's the opposite of what happens on Christmas for me which is like I'm looking forward to Christmas and I don't realize how much that is because I'm looking forward to opening gifts. And then the second that I open the gifts, I'm like, "What am we going to do the rest of the day? Like, <laughs> oh, I forgot how much of my life was looking forward to this one moment. I mean, that doesn't happen much anymore, but it did when
0: I was a kid. And now it's all over. Yeah, and now it's all over. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you would like that. I watched that scene this morning. That's why. Uh, Nick oh, Ricardo, man. I have 10 actresses in front of me. Um, we are going... From Seth Green to one of these actresses, you have to pick a number between one to ten to figure out which one we are talking about.
1: Okay, and we're going actress because we usually get we go actor, actress, actor, actress. Try to trying to do an equitable rotation here.
0: Yeah, right.
1: My question for you, real quick. I thought of this the other day. Um, how do we feel <laughs> about the fact that we're just excluding animal actors from this?
0: I can't. I can't find a random dog.
1: Uh, Airbud was also Comet. We've talked about this. I we're we're leaving something out and.
0: Eventually we do not have a solution for that in the year. Eventually
1: is gonna come at us for that. So <laughs> we need to think about
0: it. PETA. Like um, PETA Griffin? PETA
1: PETA the organization, not not our friend. PETA. <laughs> um so you wanted a number, and my number is gonna be seven.
0: Seven? Yeah. We are going from Seth Green to Gina Davis. Oh Thelma. Or, I tell you why I like Louise. this.
1: We're going a little bit back in time now with the movies, I think,
0: or we might. Gina Davis definitely more known for her work in the '90s than. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. So, okay. Nick on his uh, high-tech MacBook Pro, he's generating the next chain. Seth
1: chance. Green connected to Gina Davis by an actress named Connie Ray. Connie Ray. Um, Seth Green was with Connie Ray in a movie called Idle Hands. Connie Ray was with Gina Davis in. Stuart
0: Little. Yes. Oh, we're doing that. We're doing this? Absolutely. Okay. Idle I, Hands looks awful. Uh, so that should be fun. But I have uh not Stuart, seen... Stuart Little is a massive part of my childhood.
1: Sweet. I, I have almost no memory of the movie, but I do remember kind of liking it as a kid. Wow. I didn't know if all these people were in it. Um
0: Yeah, and... Hugh Lore is his dad. Nathan Lane's that, the dad. I,
1: I knew that.
0: Jonathan Lipnicki. Duh.
1: Yeah. But before that we have Idle Hands, which is a uh, black comedy horror film a teen movie uh that is a pretty low budge
0: uh, i'm not loving the poster
1: and it's giving me some opening jessica night. alba it's giving me some opening night vibes
0: which is good for you i guess uh i guess so all right that's our next chain join us for episodes 29 and 30 of the cinema jane gang podcast coming up soon for nick ricardo i'm andrew J. the chain continues rip Papuli, pulley rip ray rip everybody